Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Daniel Esty. Daniel Esty is the Hill House Professor at Yale University's School of Environment, Law School and School of Management. He also serves as a director of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. Uh, He's a co-director of the Yale Initiative on Sustainable Finance and serves on the advisory board of the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, which he founded. Uh, He's also the author or editor of 14 books and over 150 articles related to environmental protection, regulatory reform, energy policy, and sustainability, and their connections to corporate strategy, competitiveness, trade, and economic success. He, he received his Juris Doctor from Yale Law School, uh, his BA in economics from Harvard University, and he was a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford. So welcome, uh, Professor S.T. How's it going in New Haven? Jonas, thank you very much. Really a pleasure to be with you. Um, Things are all good here in New Haven, Connecticut on the campus of Yale University. And it's a joy to have a chance to talk with you a little bit about my work and my interests in uh, climate change broadly and climate finance more specifically. Uh, Thank you. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. I went to your resume. It's very impressive. I think our audience can learn a lot from it. So take us back to the late 1970s or early 1980s. You did your economics degree at Harvard and you were a Rhodes Scholar. And what was interesting, you had uh, your economic thesis focus on the relationship between economic power and uh, political influence. And you republished that thesis at the end of your studies at Oxford with Dr. Richard Capes. So what was your intellectual evolution at that time? So I arrived at Harvard not really knowing what I wanted to do in the way of a career or what I even wanted to study during my undergraduate education. Um, I kind of fell into economics with a class in my first year that I liked a lot and found very inspiring. I, I felt like it gave me an analytic framework that was useful for understanding uh, how the world worked broadly and, and particularly how one understands sort of a critical set of interests that influence politics and shape the direction of society. And I guess I began at that time to begin to think that I would be interested in playing some role in trying to make society uh, better, uh, improve the state of the world. And I uh, ended up majoring in economics at Harvard and did a senior thesis with Professor Richard Caves. Uh, And it was one of the first attempts to really look in an analytically rigorous, data-driven way at the relationship between economic power and political influence. And I ended up using some of the early computer tools that were available to measure how certain industries and companies were able to move legislation through the U.S. Congress. That attempt to be very fact-based and data-driven was seen as a significant breakthrough. So I ended up with a very high grade on that thesis at Harvard. And Professor Caves and I then converted that thesis into an article uh, that uh, was published and, uh, and gave me my first kind of publication in what is now a fairly long list that's accumulated ever since. Awesome. So you were a quant back then, but then you went to law school. After Harvard, I actually went off to Oxford for a couple of years and studied philosophy, politics, and economics, the combined famous degree at Oxford. And that gave me even greater depth on the economics, but also a chance to do some work on political theory. 
and really try to understand the philosophical underpinnings for uh, the way that society might work. And from there, I ended up going on to uh, the Yale Law School, which a lot of people joke is less a law school than a policy school with law as a framework. And that gave me a lot of opportunity to dig into topics that continue to be important to me today. I ended up doing a lot of work on environmental issues while at law school. I took a course on international trade, which has been a theme of my professional life ever since, and did a lot of work in those years understanding how economic tools might shape policy outcome. Awesome. So when you graduated from uh, law school, uh, you went to work in Washington, D.C. And I was listening to a podcast that you did with uh, Robert Stevens at Harvard Kennedy School. And you talked about uh, your pro bono cases. Uh, could you delve into uh, especially the one focused on Japan and Iceland? Sure. Um, so I ended up becoming a, a regulatory lawyer with a big Washington, D.C. law firm called Arnold Importer. Did a lot of work on international trade cases some on international regulation. Uh, but while I was on Arnold Import, uh, the firm had a, a very significant tradition of doing pro bono work. That is to say, taking on cases for people that couldn't afford to pay. And it turned out to be a great way for a young lawyer to get some stand-up time in courtrooms that would never otherwise be possible until you're a, at least a junior associate, if not a partner. So this was a, a chance to do uh, some real work and get the experience of being a lawyer. And I worked for a consortium of environmental groups that were challenging whaling by Iceland and Japan. And in particular, uh, trying to push the U.S. government to impose trade penalties on these countries that were violating a law that we thought needed to be enforced called the Packwood-Magnuson Act that said that countries that were diminishing the effectiveness of international conservation agreements uh, should face consequences for that. And so we brought a, a series of lawsuits, one of which went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States and, in effect, began a process that leaned very hard into these countries uh, that were continuing to do whaling long after we thought that was appropriate. So it was a great experience for me and really opened my eyes to the environmental issues that have, in the intervening years, become the major focus of my professional life. During those pro bono cases, you impressed someone called uh, William Riley, and he became the administrator of the EPA, and you joined him as his special assistant. Yes. So one of the elements of this consortium of environmental groups was the World Wildlife Fund of the United States. And uh, this guy, Bill Riley, was the head of what we more commonly call WWF. And uh, when he was named by President H.W. Bush, Father Bush, sometimes we say, uh, as the head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, um, Bill Riley asked if I would join him and come uh, to serve with him uh, in the office of the administrator, the, the top office in the EPA, as his special assistant. So I left my law practice and went into the U.S. government and after a year became the deputy chief of staff of, of the EPA and uh, a year later was moved into the position of Deputy Assistant Administrator for Policy. So I was managing one of the line offices of the EPA, uh, one of 10 offices that have substantive areas of responsibility. Uh, the policy office in particular was the place that almost all cross-cutting work was done. Uh, in that regard, I got heavily involved in climate change and was one of the negotiators uh, for the U.S. government, working on a team with other parts of the government led by the U.S. State Department that produced uh, the 1992 Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, and was also uh, in that same time frame 
a part of the team that went to the uh, famous 1992 Rio Earth Summit, formerly known as the UN Conference on Environment and Development. So this really launched me on what is now my clear career focus on environmental protection. More broadly, perhaps we would now say sustainability. But it also gave me a chance to put to work some of my economic training and interest in economic incentives as a strategy for changing behavior and driving environmental outcomes. And uh, that's really been the work I've, I've been doing ever since. I was listening to one of your talks at the Rhodes Scholarship uh, in Oxford, and you mentioned this interesting phrase, success versus real success. Uh, and could you relate that to uh, the real of some? Sure. One of the really most influential moments of my life was I, who was in charge of the Rio Earth Summit, a very famous Canadian businessman and diplomat named uh, Morris Strong, uh, came to visit Bill Riley at the EPA. And he was, as the head of this big UN conference, coming to try to talk with my boss about what would be required to ensure a positive outcome from this big gathering in Rio planned for June of 1992. And I remember Morris Strong sitting me down as we waited to meet with the EPA administrator. And I asked him how he thought things were going. And he said to me something that I've remembered ever thereafter. He said, Dan, anytime we bring together uh, the leaders from 120 different countries, uh, which is in fact uh, who showed up in Rio in, in June of that year. And uh, it was at the time the largest gathering ever of presidents and prime ministers, heads of state, heads of government. Uh, and what Morris Strong said, when we have all those people gathered and all their supporting advisors and cabinet ministers, uh, thousands of media people and probably 10,000 plus other observers, non-governmental organizations, uh, he said it will be very clear that only one of two outcomes is possible. He said it's really a question of whether we have success and then producing air quotes, he said, or real success, by which he meant all these people gathered where they're going to declare themselves to have had a successful gathering and would declare that they had made a difference. But the real test would not be in June in Rio de Janeiro. It would be in the years thereafter about whether the issues on which commitments were made actually got moved forward. Did we uh, deliver on the promise of that 1992 framework convention on climate change or not? Did we deliver on the convention on biodiversity that was concluded in Rio? Would we make progress on forest protection and avoided deforestation in pursuit of the principles for forest management that were agreed upon in Rio? Would we implement the Rio declaration with its core principles of effectively of international law that countries were committing to and how they would deal with each other? And I think the, the sad reality, particularly on the climate change question, was that that 1992 uh, convention, which, by the way, was ratified quite quickly by a number of countries, including very quickly by the United States. People sometimes forget that. Uh, but there was a moment back in 1992 where the environment was a bipartisan issue in the United States. Republicans as well as Democrats uh, were behind this agenda. And, you know, I, I was actually convinced that uh, with five rounds of international negotiations leading to this UN treaty that was uh, finalized in April of 1992, presented for signature by presidents and prime ministers at the Rio Earth Summit in June of 1992 and ratified later that year in the United States and by uh, many other countries around the world, I, I thought I'd pretty much solved the problem of climate change, not alone, of course, but that the world of people working on it had done what needed to be done. And some months later, I concluded it was time to 
move on from government. I went to a think tank in Washington, uh, the Peterson Institute of International Economics, uh, and ended up beginning a, a career in policy analysis, researching, writing about how the policy world should move forward. Um, I did that first bit of work with a funding from the Council on Foreign Relations, a, a New York City-based kind of think tank on international issues. Uh, and they gave me some money to help produce what became the, my first book called Greening the GATT. Of course, as I went from there to becoming a professor at Yale, based on that book, I got invited to interview for a position split between the Yale Law School and the Yale School of the Environment and ended up being hired. And it was only as time passed and as I was teaching courses on climate change, teaching courses on environmental law and policy, did I realize that that 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was not producing real success. We had developed a direction for the world. We'd set out some targets and timetables, but we had not thought through uh, in a clear enough way who needed to change behavior and what was going to cause that behavior to change. We frankly hadn't done what I should have known we needed to do with my training in economics, which was ask, what are the incentives that are in place to get people to do things differently? So by the end of the 1990s, I was already clear that we were in some trouble uh, as a global community because there was not progress emerging on climate change. That original 1992 agreement had set a target of reducing emissions in the year 2000 to 1990 levels. And by the time 2000 rolls around, only a small number of countries had in fact uh, even leveled off their emissions. Uh, almost everybody else had not. And we also knew by the end of that decade that there had been a very serious structural flaw in that original framework convention, notably that the obligations to actually take action were only signed onto by a subset of countries. 40 something nations defined in that original 1992 convention as a so-called list of Annex One countries, effectively the developed world. And those countries took on real obligations. Everybody else did not. Uh, as a result, real success was elusive. Emissions went up, particularly in the developing world, and emissions went down only in a couple of countries in the developed world, and for reasons that might not have actually been related in most circumstances to climate change policy. So we emerged at the end of this century uh, in a not very good place on climate change. And so I've been spending time ever since trying to understand what it takes to deliver successful policy responses to hard issues, beginning with climate change, and particularly to understand how you get countries to work together across all the divides that exist in the international arena, and how you really change behavior beyond that. Because it's often not countries themselves that are the ones that need to change, but the companies or the communities or even the individuals beneath that whose behavior and choices determine whether we emit greenhouse gases or we shift towards a clean energy future. Speaking of uh, developed and developing countries, I can see from 1998 onwards, you started working uh, on what's called the Environment Performance Index. And what was interesting is you, you mentioned your thesis advisor at Harvard, uh, Richard Capes, one of the students that he was a doctoral supervisor to, uh, Michael Porter, you worked with him on, on several articles. For those who don't know Michael Porter, Michael Porter had written the book, The Competitive Advantage of Nations. So could you delve into uh, the genesis of the Environmental Performance Index and what were you trying to achieve with that? So as you um, already picked up on, I'm a big believer that progress in general needs to be data-driven, fact-based, empirical. And so I'm a big believer that one should try to measure 
and analyze problems with some degree of quantitative analysis. And so I got interested very early on in my academic career in trying to understand what good environmental policy looked like, what good environmental performance looked like. And I came to believe that one needed to be outcome oriented, understand who's actually delivering reduced emissions and not input oriented, not who's spending the most money, which may or may not translate into a good outcome. And so I really, um, with a team of folks at Yale and some colleagues at Columbia, came, became convinced that there would be value in producing a data-driven analysis of country-scale sustainability performance across a range of issues, now 11 in our current model of this environmental performance index. So we're looking at climate change performance, at movement towards a clean energy future, at air pollution, water pollution, management of land, habitat protection, a whole series of issues, each of which is underpinned by one, two, three, four, sometimes five metrics, data frameworks uh, from reliable data sources. And we then add this up in a way that allows us to say something about uh, who the global leaders are on sustainability, and then to disaggregate that analysis and say issue by issue, who's doing best. And so some of this was a function of my interest in data, but it was also a, a function of something I had come, become convinced of in my time at the Environmental, Performance, at the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, and that time at the EPA in Washington had convinced me that there had been a misunderstanding in the 20th century about business. Yes, business is the source of a lot of pollution, a lot of environmental problems, but I also became convinced that with the right structure of incentives, with the right uh, policy framework, business could in fact be uh, a source of solutions to environmental problems, a source of innovation. And I became very convinced that uh, innovation was critical to progress, uh, particularly technology development, but not just technology development. Uh, we need new ways to engage the public. We need new ways to finance investments in environmental protection. I became very clear that one of the failings of the 1992 Framework Convention was that no one had asked the question, where is the money going to come from to really invest in solutions to climate change? And so I really turned to the work of Michael Porter uh, because he was thinking about business as a force for change, not only to success within the business uh, community, but more broadly as a force for societal change. And so I adopted the model that Mike Porter had developed around competitiveness and began to develop my own offshoot of that, which was work that suggested that companies that handled environmental issues, uh, and now more broadly, we probably would call them sustainability issues, effectively were likely to be positioned ahead of their competitors and deliver better marketplace results, uh, have faster growth, bigger market share, and, uh, and deliver benefits not only from the company point of view in terms of profitability and growth, but from a societal point of view, potentially at the same time, if the policy framework were designed right, deliver from that business choice of activities and ways of doing business outcomes for society that would advance the sustainability agenda. And so that's what I was doing with my work with Michael Porter. Um, I have continued to do the Environmental Performance Index and produce that every other year now for more than two decades. Uh, and we're able to identify countries that are leaders, frankly, call out countries that are laggards, identify best practices. And I'm a big believer if you disseminate best practices, you can get a lot done because people will step up and adopt those policy approaches, uh, even without mandates or regulation. And 
my work with Michael Porter led me to write a book uh, called Green to Gold, how smart companies use environmental strategy to innovate, create value, and build competitive advantage. Very long subtitle, but it means now you don't have to read the book. I've just given you the whole story. And this grew out of research that I've been doing for a number of years on how one should harness the business potential to deliver environmental outcomes. I hired a student named Andrew Winston to help do the research with me. Uh, and he eventually became a co-author of that book and has in fact launched a, a very successful career as a, a corporate strategy consultant based on the work we did over, well, really it ended up being over the better part of a decade on understanding what companies were doing that worked when it comes to environmental strategy and delivering competitive advantage and what was not working. And in the intervening years, I've done several more books on uh, corporate sustainability and really continue to be convinced that one wants to find ways to harness the capacity of business to deliver a good environmental outcome. So after you published the first book on Green to Gold in 2006, uh, 2007, you set up the Yale Center for Business Environment, and then 2008-9, you were an energy and environmental policy advisor to the Obama presidential campaign and transition team. And then after that, in 2011, you wrote a book, uh, which is a playbook, which is a follow-up, right? to green to gold so you said that everything was written in, in the title of the book itself but why did you now have to produce a playbook so the book green to gold really took off you know i feel very lucky that the argument that i was trying to make and had been building out for a decade leading up to the publication of the book caught the eye of business people at a moment when they were feeling pressure to deliver environmental outcomes and i think uh, in fact the pressure on the business community is actually inverse to the success of the policy community in delivering progress on the environment. Uh, and through the middle years of the 2000s, uh, there was a lot of frustration with uh, the George W. Bush administration uh, and not advancing the agenda on climate change or on some of these other environmental issues. So the pressure ramped up on the business community as many people were saying, well, let's go to the people that are causing the harm and ask them to fix it, directly go to the business community. And uh, so I do think that what I found was that there was a, an even bigger appetite than I had imagined for guidance to the business world about how to get sustainability done on the ground. And the playbook was really focused, again, as the subtitle of the book suggests, on how to implement sustainability practices for bottom line results so we don't ignore profitability or, or growth in every business function. And what that means is we're thinking about how sustainability should be mapped into the research and development program of a company, the marketing of a company, uh, how it does distribution, its interest in alignment with other partners, including in the industry and beyond. So we developed a quite comprehensive a kind of foundation for our companies that wanted to develop sustainability strategies with sort of each chapter of the book providing an element of what might become a part of a corporate sustainability strategy. Awesome. Around the same time that you published the playbook, uh, you became the uh, commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. If I'm not mistaken, there was a Department of Energy and Environment Protection, and they were merged together. And there were several notable policies uh, that uh, you and your colleagues implemented. But what I found very interesting, especially for the Climate Finance Podcast, is the Greenback concept. So you have it quite right. There was an existing Department of Environmental Protection. There were a set of energy activities scattered around in the state government. And the new governor, a guy named Dan Malloy, took my suggestion that there be a new department created that would be a Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. 
systematically structuring the state's work on energy. And that was partly a reflection of frustration that what was going on in Washington was not providing much progress on movement towards a clean energy future. And it was a moment where a number of governors said, I guess we better at the state level step up to this challenge because it doesn't look like Washington is going to get us where we need to go. And Governor Malloy gave me a lot of running room to put together this new department. Uh, we hired some great people and really, for the first time ever, produced a, an energy strategy for the state of Connecticut that has led the state to being out front in a number of regards, uh, really work uh, across all sectors to improve energy efficiency at the household level, uh, so residential uh, improvement. Uh, at the commercial level, working with owners of shops and stores, uh, at the production and industrial level, working with factories, uh, and then also bringing a clean energy production to the state in a variety of regards. And one of the mechanisms that we set up to finance the efforts on energy efficiency and clean energy production was this first uh, in the nation Green Bank. And the Green Bank had a very different approach to climate finance, to clean energy finance than anyone had really thought of before. And it was to say that the role of government shouldn't be to directly subsidize these investments. That was the old business model, where if you put a solar array on your roof and it cost $30,000, you would get perhaps the government fund for promoting a clean energy to give you a refund, a rebate for half the price. But that's not very good leverage. It means $15,000 of government money is supporting $15,000 of your own private capital to get a project done we concluded that there was a much greater potential to use that limited pool of government money, inevitably limit, you can't get all the money you would ever want, but use that to leverage much greater sums of private capital. So rather than the government becoming the direct funder of projects, we invested those government funds to de-risk the flow of private capital into clean energy projects. And at the time, uh, there were a lot of lenders that were willing to step up, but the experience base with clean energy was not so great. And as a result, there was a sense that it was very risky. Um, and we did not think that uh, people were going to accept uh, private sector loans at 13 or 14 percent. Uh, so I told the banks that were willing to put up money, we need a 6 percent interest rate to make these projects go. And so what we worked out was a, a risk sharing strategy uh, whereby the Connecticut Green Bank would take part uh, of the default risk away from the private sector entities. And we would have them take the first percent of default risk because we want to avoid the problem that's known as moral hazard, where they're not careful about who they loan the money to. But then the Connecticut Green Bank was willing to take the second, third and fourth percent of default risk, which from a bank's point of view, dramatically reduced the chances they were going to lose money. It made them much more enthusiastic and much more willing to put the money out at interest rates that we considered attractive to our potential investors actually at the household level, but particularly at the commercial level. And uh, this allowed us to do projects at you know, 6% interest uh, rather than 12 or 13. And that made all the difference in the world. A huge number of the borrowers, particularly in the business world, found that with that low interest rate, they could invest in efficiency, invest in a clean energy production on the rooftop, and all of that would come through um, in a way that gave them reduced energy costs uh, immediately. Um, and that reduction was often greater 
than the investment they had to make in a, a solar array on the roof or energy efficiency. I want to congratulate you on the work we did with the Green Bank. You left in 2014, and I read a statistic on the website by 2015, $1 billion of private investments was catalyzed over 10,000 projects. And that Green Bank concept has not only spread across multiple states in the U.S., but also around the world. Well, let me just say that we were really thrilled because it did just what we had hoped to do, which was allow a much greater scale of activity with this limited pot of government money. And in effect, we moved from $1 public money leveraging $1 private money to a seven to one leverage ratio. So a, a dramatic scale up. Uh, and this frankly is now what the global community needs to do to ensure that our, again, limited supplies, although substantial supplies now of capital being devoted to moving society towards a clean energy future, gets maximum lift, uh, delivers change at scale and speed across the world. And I do think the Green Bank model is a breakthrough in that regard. It's a thrill to see it across the United States now and part of the federal government's Inflation Reduction Act, this IRA legislation. But it's also a thrill to see it in so many different countries. And I, I think we are going to need similar structures of blended finance. That's really the key here to drive progress uh, in every corner of the world that needs to be part of this transition uh, to a low carbon future with a real focus on delivering that uh, over the next decade or two. So after you left your role with the government uh, of Connecticut, uh, you moved back to, to academia and you published uh, three books in, in three consecutive years, 2019, 2020, and 2021. Uh, the first one uh, was a collection of work by the Yale faculty, A Big Planet, 40 Big Ideas, for sustainable future. And you had a special essay uh, from red lights to green lights, which I found very interesting. Uh, and then in the next book, which is Values at Work, Sustainable Investing and ESG Report with Todd Colt, who we previously interviewed, you had some very interesting insights on creating next generation and investment grade uh, corporate sustainability metrics. And lastly, the third book is an advanced introduction to US environmental law with Donald Elliott. And what's interesting, it's advanced and introduction, which is a bit of an oxymoron to me, but I, I found it to be a very interesting book. So let me just jump in and give you a little bit more depth and detail on each of these books. I had been away from Yale for three years running Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. And I realized that there was a real need for inspirational ideas that could drive policy change. So the first book, this Better Planet book, uh, was really produced with an eye toward the upcoming election that occurred uh, just thereafter. And the theory was, let's put together a menu of, of creative ideas that would allow us to move towards a sustainable future across a full spectrum of issues, air pollution, water pollution, climate change, clean energy, land use management, biodiversity, that whole spectrum get the top people on each of those topics to tell us uh, in very simple terms what was needed, what the problem was, how to overcome it, how to go forward, and who needed to do what. And so these are short essays, uh, but really inspiring in each topic and have really helped people in a range of policy settings to think about steps forward. Uh, and as you mentioned, I have a couple of essays in that book, but one in particular has gotten a lot of attention called From Red Lights to Green Lights. And the argument there is a simple one. Much of the structure of environmental law as it's developed uh, in modern times since about 1970, uh, so over a 50-year time frame, has been about telling people what not to do. Don't pollute. Don't throw away this waste. Don't do this. Don't do that. So stop sign or red lights telling people what not to do. And it became clear to me in government 
that got that we need in the policy framework much more guidance to people about what they should do incentives about where to spend their money, spend their time, uh, and how to really harness uh, the capacity in particular of the corporate world to drive change. So this was the argument I made that uh, innovation is critical to progress. Businesses are particularly good at innovation in many contexts. And from a society-wide point of view, we need to harness that business capacity to deliver change, uh, to bring uh, breakthrough technologies, but also all these other elements of innovation that I mentioned earlier. And uh, so that's the, the argument. Let's set up a structure of incentives, of green lights that say, go, here's a problem, please help solve it. And then the, the book uh, in 22, uh, Values at Work. Uh, again, the subtitle tells you a lot of the story. It's sustainable investing and ESG reporting. Uh, that of course refers to environmental, social, and governance metrics that a growing number of investors wanna have as part of their investment strategy which is to say they're asking their investment advisors for better alignment between their values as a person and their portfolios as an investor. And in many cases, people want to make sure that they're not putting their money into companies that are causing serious problems environmentally, perhaps releasing a lot of greenhouse gases or destroying the biodiversity of the planet. The, the finance world, the investment world is suddenly scrambling to figure out how to gauge who the sustainability leaders are in the corporate world, who the laggards are, and how to advise their investor clients about this alignment that they're seeking. And this book lays out both some of the problems with this effort, but also some of the ways forward. And uh, with my co-editor, Todd Cord, and a range of, of authors who've contributed chapters, I think we've really given the finance world, the investment world, some guidance on how to bring sustainability into uh, the strategies they deploy for assembling portfolios. And then Don Elliott, longtime professor at Yale, colleague of mine over many years, and I produced this environmental law book uh, to really try to distill out. Uh, a lot of law is taught in very big, fat case books um, that are hard for people to read. So we wanted to make an easy to read introduction to environmental law, uh, but we didn't want it to be simple. And that's why it's called an advanced introduction. It's for people that are trying to be pretty serious and sophisticated. And we also took the opportunity to lay out our critique of the existing structure of environmental law. So it's a comprehensive review of all the big laws in the United States, but also not just laying out what they're doing, but how well they're doing. And our commentary on that is, I think, uh, in most cases, we could do much better. And so we lay out a reform agenda and that really is part of my life's work is to say, let's not be complacent with what we have now. If we want a sustainable future, we're going to need to move ourselves forward uh, on a number of fronts. We're going to need the corporate world to move forward, to be more sustainable in how it does what it does. Uh, we need the law framework to be refined and reformed so that it's providing better guidance to the world, better incentives to drive performance towards a sustainable future. And, uh, you know, as I like to joke, at the Yale Law School, we don't just teach what the law is, we invite the students to figure out what it should be going forward. That was a really good way to end it because uh, now we're moving on to your work experience at WTO. And this is 30 years after your experience at the 1992 summit. So could you talk about your work of integrating sustainability with the trade regulation, especially with the director? So my work on what I used to call trade and environment, now might call sustainability and trade, uh, goes back, as you said, 30 years, my first book having been Greening the Gat, 
before there even was a World Trade Organization. And that 1994 book said to the folks managing this world of international trade, uh, you can't be sure that you're actually making progress for the world, delivering advances in welfare, uh, if you don't take account of environmental harms that might be a result of the production of these goods and the movement of these goods around the world. And I made the case at that time for the trading system to take on much more of a focus on environment uh, to, in effect, and to use the words of economists, to internalize the potential negative externalities. Now, not all of that got taken up, although the World Trade Organization did launch in 1995 with a new mission built in beyond what had been part of the original trade world launched in 1947. Uh, and this launch of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, included a commitment that the trading system should be advanced in a way that supports sustainable development. So that was the idea that I'd been arguing for. And in my intervening now almost 30 years at Yale, I have on a regular basis taken up this topic again and tried to make new and better and fresh arguments uh, about why the trade world should become more sustainable. The most recent project in this regard was launched in 2021 uh, called Remaking Global Trade for a Sustainable Future with colleagues around the world uh, and the then relatively new head, uh, in fact, very new head of the World Trade Organization, Bewela, uh, former World Bank official, twice finance minister of Nigeria, had stepped into the WTO at a difficult moment. The organization was seen as drifting towards the periphery of global governance, uh, seen by many as not as effective as it needed to be, seen by many as out of touch with 21st century values, uh, too concerned with opportunities for big companies, not concerned enough uh, about impacts on workers or, or the potential opportunities for small businesses, for farmers, uh, and too focused on the, the success of consumers and not focused on people in their other roles as citizens uh, and as workers. And, and perhaps fundamentally out of touch with a growing sense that the world needs to focus on sustainability broadly, on climate change action in particular. So I briefed Dr. Ngozi, as she likes to be called, on this project, on this agenda. Uh, she got very excited about it and said, Dan, would you think of coming to Geneva and spending some time with me at the World Trade Organization and with a team uh, at the WTO to help develop a sustainability agenda. And Yale was good enough to let me go. I've been on public service leave. And a few months back, uh, Dr. Ngozi said, you know, Dan, the work's not done. Could you extend your leave? And I was able to, uh, with the help of President Salabay at Yale, uh, get approval to extend that time away through the end of the calendar year 2023. And this allows me to continue to work with the WTO team uh, to advance this idea that the trading system can be remade from the bottom up uh, with a, a new commitment to sustainability built in at the core, but also a, a new, I think, updated economic foundation. And I think there was a, a bit of a problem in the trading system somewhere in the 1980s and 90s, where a prevailing economic theory of neoliberalism, some might call it market fundamentalism, captured not just domestic policy with big pushes around deregulation in many countries, but captured this international trading system with a focus on clearing away obstacles to trade. Well, it turned out one person's obstacle to trade is another person's environmental regulation. And so I've been arguing for a new approach that takes seriously the rights of governments around the world to regulate in ways that may have some impact on trade, but which are fundamental to advancing other values that people care about. Uh, fundamentally environmental protection, but in other cases, uh, labor rights, uh, protecting workers against adverse incomes, ensure uh, out adverse outcomes uh, from trade and protecting their incomes. 
And in, in all of this, it requires a rethought, reframed approach uh, to the structure of international trade. And that's what I've been building out. I have in parallel with my work inside the WTO with Dr. Ngozi, been running a series of workshops with this Remaking Global Trade for a Sustainable Future team, uh, looking at various mm -hmm. issues where the sustainability agenda and the trade system bump into each other or sometimes crash into each other. Uh, and we're drawing from this series of workshops on climate change, on pathways to a, a just transition to a clean energy future and transport, on farming and food systems. All of these different issues, we've drawn an agenda for reform that is soon to be presented at the World Trade Organization Public Forum, and then will be taken out around the world as a focus of conversation. How do we advance this agenda? How do we refine it? Are there ideas for making it stronger or better or reframing elements? And then how do we build the political momentum to actually get something done and produce a trading system fit for purpose uh, for the 21st century. Uh, and it will deliver not just economic opportunity and greater efficiency, but also support the global community's commitment to climate change action in particular, but to a sustainable future more broadly. Uh, thank you, Professor. This has been an amazing interview. At the end of every interview of this podcast, we like to end with a question, which is advice to the listeners. What is the best advice, if I may ask, the best advice you've given to uh, some of your Yale students uh, on those who want to pursue a career in uh, climate change, climate finance, and so on? So the advice I always give to people is that one needs to be committed to both ideas and action. And that if you care about making a difference in the world, it's valuable to be out in the world, really trying to drive on the ground change. But to be successful and enduring in that change, you need to have a good base of ideas. Why are you changing? What are you changing? How are you changing things? And this is an idea I got as a high school student reading the works uh, of Emerson, who uh, was an author from Concord, Massachusetts, where I happened to go to high school. And he long said that a real success in life, in a work, requires both a commitment to the life of ideas and the life of action. And I have tried to live by that in the intervening now nearly 50 years and have found that really is very good advice. Uh, that is an excellent way to end podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Steve, for your time. Uh, have a great day in uh, New Haven. My pleasure. It was really a joy to be with you and uh, good luck with the program. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.